this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode three of the 2019 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. Robert Allen, professor and head of the Forensic Sciences Department at Oklahoma State University, about a method to estimate the age of bloodstains using quantitative PCR. Traditionally, RNA has been used to identify types of cells and to determine if a sample of blood came from two sources. Dr. Allen and his team have found a new use for the single-strand genetic material, estimating the age of dried blood. By studying the ratios of degradation that take place in RNA, they can estimate the age of a blood stain up to three years old. Listen along as our guest discusses his research and RNA's role in body fluid identification. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice run by RTI International this week. We are in Baltimore at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in February of 2019. We are pleased to have with us Dr. Robert Allen. He is the chair and program director as well as a professor of forensic sciences at the School of Forensic Sciences Center of Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University. And he got his PhD in molecular biology and genetics from Purdue University and, and has 82 publications with two more in present, two in preparation editor-in-chief of the Journal of Forensic Investigation. Welcome, Rob. Thank you very much. Tell me kind of what the emphasis at, at Oklahoma State with respect to forensic sciences. There's people doing broader work than molecular biology, right? That's correct, yeah. The Center for Health Sciences is strictly a graduate program. The School of Forensic Sciences launched our first class, if you will, in 2001. So we've been around around 18 years. We have uh, master's level training presently in forensic biology forensic chemistry, forensic psychology, and death scene investigation, and then a very large program that targets practitioners in explosives and arson oh. investigation. Your work, though, is in molecular biology. It is. We're going to be talking today in particular about some work that you've done uh, for NIJ on the age of a uh, biological fluid specimen. That's correct. That would contain RNA, so it's based on the degradation of RNA. That is correct. Let's take a step back because I can tell you myself, I, I mean, I've been in the sciences for a very, very long time myself, and we talk about some of these concepts, we really don't get into it in terms of going from the basics all the way over into where we're trying to get the science to move right now. That's correct. So RNA, obviously DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid, RNA is without the deoxy. What is the role of RNA in the cell? If you think back probably to, for me it may have been high school biology, now it may be sixth grade biology. You'll remember that your genetic code, which is the repository of who you are, is contained within DNA. But in order to read those chapters, a cell synthesizes an intermediate known as RNA that actually becomes the script, if you will, out in the cytoplasm of a cell to manufacture all the proteins and carbohydrates and everything that makes you 
survive and function. You have one copy in your cell nucleus of your DNA. That's correct. I think people don't realize just how dynamic the DNA is. It's opening and closing all That's the right. time to make RNA. It's kind of like a heartbeat when sure. you think about it. It goes through a rhythmic cycle of being decoded and then put the book away for a minute until you need that information in the recipe for life again, in which the DNA relaxes, RNA is made, it flows out into the cytoplasm where it's decoded into protein. So now is all the RNA being made the same? Because there might be different kinds of protein structures in different parts of the cell. Tell us about the structure of RNA, because that's gonna be important for your research. DNA is double-stranded. There are two chains that are complementary, like the halves of a zipper that zip up or zip down, depending upon whether the DNA is gonna be decoded. RNA is just a single piece of nucleic acid and has the chemical difference already referred to in terms of deoxy versus ribonucleic acid. Once it's decoded and processed and leaves the nucleus of a cell, it's a single-stranded molecule, has some chemical modifications on each end that help protect it from being degraded. Right. It combines with the protein synthetic machinery. The protein is made. The RNA can be copied many times in terms of protein copies per mm -hmm. molecule. But eventually, as the cell no longer needs whatever that product is, that RNA will decompose and disappear. It will be broken back down into its building blocks, which may be recycled or excreted from the cell, whatever. All right? Sure. The other piece of it is that every cell in your body has the same encyclopedia of who you are, but only certain chapters are read depending upon whether you're a liver cell or a heart cell or a skin cell. So different cell populations in the body will have different compositions of RNA mm -hmm. depending upon what that cell is supposed to do. Now, has RNA been applied in terms of looking at body fluid identification then? It has. That was really the, probably the beginning of securing its place in the forensic sciences. There's lots of simple and inexpensive assays to distinguish semen from blood, from saliva, etc. Things that operate a lot like the home pregnancy test kit. But occasionally, if you get mixtures of blood from let's say, a, a woman who's on her period and a perpetrator sure. who's murdered her or something, you can use an analysis of RNA to determine that, hey, this is a mixture of two different individuals. And unknown tissues can be identified based upon the composition of RNA or the detection of specific RNA molecules unique to skin or urine or all other body fluids. Now, in general, though, RNA is not very good for individualizing. Not yet. Yeah. I wouldn't presuppose to suggest that somebody won't look at it in a way that's be very technologically sophisticated, but the genes that distinguish you from me, in terms of the DNA polymorphisms we think about, may also find their way into RNA molecules sometimes in terms of the sequence. Well, you can have anything from, like, the differences in eye color or have mm -hmm. to be coming from a, an RNA messenger that's going off and you that's bet. different from that part of the DNA. But you're also going to have single nucleotide polymorphisms. That's what I'm talking well. about. Yeah, okay. Now, you're trying to say, all right, you have a, uh, a crime scene stain that was deposited at some point. You don't know what the age of that stain is. That's correct. Now, DNA uh, itself is available there, but DNA is relatively stable. That's correct. DNA was not necessarily a good choice for, for trying to find the, the age of the stain? No, but I suspect that if you were really interested in perhaps trying to age 
really, really old stains. I mean, DNA does decompose. It's just the time frame over which it happens may be measured in decades or something, depending upon how that body fluid stain exists environmentally. Sure. Uh, RNA degrades much faster. And so our studies on the decomposition of RNA, if you will, which we think is a good molecular clock, has a span of time over maybe one to three years. We've gone out as far as three years now. Okay. But all the work I talked about yesterday was stains aged for up to one year. So the time frame is much shorter, which makes analysis of RNA perhaps a better candidate for the typical kind of crime scene sample. Actually, you touched on something I want to make sure our listeners are, are aware of, and Dr. Allen's presentation was recorded here at uh, AFS during the NIJ Research and Development Symposium. For those of you who are looking more into some of the technical information about his research, I encourage you to uh, go on our website, ForensicCOE.org, and search on the 2019 symposium and find his work. You'll be able to uh, view his presentation off of the website. So this kind of sets it up. So this is a viable approach. What have been the barriers to us being able to apply the use of RNA aging? Okay, so the value of RNA degradation as a possible indicator of elapsed time is not a new idea. There have been sort of anecdotal reports in the literature of somebody finding RNA in a bloodstain that's 30 years old, for example. Just, wow, I found RNA here. And see the, the sort of dogma that molecular biologists grow up with in the field of molecular biology is that RNA is very unstable. You know, if you don't take great, great care to preserve it when you're working with it, it will disappear. Sure. And it will disappear because there are enzymes that just love to chew it up. And, and so the notion that a 30-year-old blood stain would still have RNA in it for, say, hemoglobin, which is a huge protein product in red cells, right? So there's lots of that RNA in a blood stain. The notion that you would find it in a 30-year-old stain was kind of surprising. There have been other attempts to look at the concentration of different RNAs in different kinds of stains. Uh, those have yielded encouraging sorts of hints that it might be possible. But in reality, all of the studies that have been done suffer from limitations, and the limitations relate to the technological steps that you have to go through to actually quantify how much RNA is a stain. Not really to toot my own horn, but we developed a new way to look at it. And instead of looking at multiple RNAs, we look at the ends of single RNA species. Okay. So some of the technological variability that enters into the assay disappears because you're looking at one molecule instead of two. So the ends being these caps that are put on That's by correct. the cell onto the ends of the RNA to keep it intact. That's correct. That's correct. Do those ends protect it from the enzymes? It does. It does, and also perhaps from chemical breakdown of the RNA. And what we discovered is that the disappearance of the end is different from the five prime end versus the three prime end of that transcript. And we found this to be a general phenomenon in the overall degradation of RNA in dried body fluid stains, blood, semen, saliva, sure. and secretions. So five prime and three prime being two different kinds of RNA or two different no, no, no. ends of a single piece of RNA? It's the term given to the ends, and you might kind of think of it in RNA as a sentence. 
Mm -hmm. So there's a start to the sentence, and that's the five prime end. And there's a period to end the sentence, and that's the three prime end. And the way the RNA gets degraded in a dried stain is that the five prime is preferentially chewed up faster than the three prime. So by studying the ratio of that degradative process, we can measure time. So now, when you talk about the degradative process, I can imagine several different kinds of chemical mechanisms, right? You very carefully said dried blood stain. That's correct. Because I assume in a wet blood stain, you're going to have much more enzymatic activity. That's right. And so you're really talking about an oxidative kind of re reaction. That's right. And we think the deoxy in DNA that protects it, when that's not there, it's susceptible to chemical attack. The nucleic acid molecule is susceptible to attack. Okay. But the fascinating part of this is that it doesn't happen randomly. I mean, every nucleotide in an RNA chain lacks that deoxy protection, right? So presumably, every nucleotide in the RNA chain should be equally susceptible to chemical oxidation. And in fact, that's not what happens. It comes in from the ends with the five prime moving faster than the three prime. Can you tell the difference between degradation that's oxidative versus enzymatic? So is it possible this could be applied outside of dry blood stains or is, so that you might be able to see oxidative reactions outside of the dry blood stains as a, as a clock? Well, am I just sort of stabbing at the wind here? You know, my hope is that what we're learning about, now this is separate from the forensic application, which is the reason we're here, right? Sure. But my feeling is that understanding the degradative process in dried blood stains may let us know enough about RNA degradation that perhaps that information will be relevant to some other sort of human disease because your health and well-being depends upon the balance of making RNA and getting rid of RNA. And if you happen to have one of those single nucleotide polymorphisms, for example, that alters the sensitivity of an RNA molecule to be degraded either chemically or enzymatically, maybe what we're learning will help pinpoint an underlying cause of a disease or something to that effect. I mean, that's, sure. that probably is well beyond the end of my career, but it's a tremendous amount of fun to understand this degradative process as it exists just for basic science. And the big payoff is that it may also have application in some area of relevance to everyday life. Sure, in addition to being bags of water, we're also bags of aging RNA. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. <laughs> so let's go a little bit more deep into your research now. So are there particular methods that you're applying for examining RNA that kind of facilitate the ability to look at degradation in this way? Here's the other thing about our project. We started out back in probably 2013, actually taking all the RNA out of a dried stain and subjecting it to nucleotide sequencing. So, for example, in a blood stain, we were able to identify about 15,000 different messenger RNAs that all contribute to the life process in a blood cell. Sure. Each one of which is associated with a particular protein that the That's DNA right. is trying to send out That's to right. the world. Yeah. And our goal with taking that approach was kind of get a survey of what's happening to degradation in general. And, and that was done in those four different body fluids. But it was never the end game when we got into this to continue to use RNA sequencing as our tool 
that would be used in a crime laboratory hoping to estimate the age of a blood stain, a semen stain, or whatever. Okay. We transitioned after we got all of this data to quantitative PCR, which is a routinely performed procedure in crime labs all over the country because they have to quantify the amount of DNA they pull out of a biological sample. Of course, I'm sure just about everybody doing DNA work who's listening would recognize that. You bet. <laughs> that was really the focus of our end game. We wanted to use the RNA sequencing to identify a handful of transcripts that we could then transition into a qPCR format and quantify just those four uh, or five or two or what, however many it ended up. So we began our studies with stains using qPCR, using sort of the prevailing method that exists in the field, which is to use qPCR to quantify an RNA template that is presumably stable, something like ribosomal RNA that has a lot of secondary structure that protects it from degradation, or a housekeeping gene that's always expressed in large amounts that is, again, presumably stable. You have one of these that you're quantifying, and then you also quantify the one that you suspect is going to change with age. So the 18S becomes your reference and you can normalize all your different PCR reactions as you, as you pull your samples out that have been aged for differing times. Turns out that's a nightmare because you're having to quantify through polymerase chain reaction two separate targets, each of which has its own stochastic probabilities that you will not amplify on the first round, and, and it's just a mess. Right. right? And only worse when you're looking at crime scene stains oh, yeah. themselves. Oh, right? yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So uh, one day I'm looking at, again, the RNA sequencing results, and, and the way I'm looking at it with the software allows me to see what's called the read depth, how many times each nucleotide in a given RNA molecule has been sequenced in a run. <laughs> and so I'm, I notice that a freshly created sample stain that really hasn't been aged for more than 16 hours, for example. If you look at the read depth from the five prime end of the, man, of, of the message to the three prime end, it's equal all the way across. After 180 days, though, the five prime end is almost gone. The three prime end read depth is still really high. Sure. So the light bulb goes on, and what if we just look at the ends, and we use qPCR to amplify small amplicons from each of the ends, and then set up a ratio of how much of the ends there are. If we plotted that versus the elapsed time, what kind of straight line might we get? What kind of kinetic line might we get? That would be a reflection of the degradative process. What is the length of a, of a typical RNA strand? Probably, I don't know, it varies all over the place, but all the ones that we look at, uh, they range from about 450 nucleotides all the way up to almost uh, 1,000 okay. nucleotides. And the degradation is occurring in a stepwise function? Does it go from, we have a thousand nucleotides, does it go to 999, 998, no. or is there, there are particular breakpoints that are I more mean, likely? Our early results suggest that it, in fact, it does not start at the very end because we have, at the five prime end of the message, we have our first target amplicon that we're amplifying to quantify. Uh huh. And it looks like there is a sensitive spot 
downstream towards the three prime end, that is the point of attack. So it doesn't look like it just chews in nucleotide by nucleotide by nucleotide. Sure. We haven't really delved into that. That's going to be a project for the next student that comes in because we've sort of developed methods to map sensitive and non-sensitive areas within the four transcripts that we've looked at in detail. Again, that's, that's research that is on the horizon that we hope to address, but preliminary results suggest that there's just a sensitive site sort of inside the fence, if you will, where that chemical pack begins. And at the same time, at the other end, the three prime end of the message, we have another primer set for one of our markers that if it's not in the coding region of the message, if it's down in the three prime untranslated region, it seems to change the kinetics of how the three prime end degrades. There may be some chemical modifications, uh, methylations taking place down sure. in the adenosines close to the poly A tail that confers stability on the transcript. So there's just a fascinating world of additional facts to unravel about this degradative process, and I think that information may be valid. So that raises, of course, the question about other kinds of variability, right? This is all research laboratory kinds of stains, and so you have a fairly decent control over what you're doing to dry the stains and the conditions under which they are put. That's right. So how many variables have you been looking at in that regard? I mean, I assume you, you keep it away from light and certainly UV light and things of that nature, which would be more confounding variables. I had a, discussed a little bit of that yesterday in the talk, but of course, all of our foundational work thus far has been done with stain stored in a laboratory, you know, 20 degrees centigrade, about 40, 43% humidity in a drawer, so it's in the dark. We'll call those ideal conditions. So I have a student that's just finishing up that uh, is assessing the effect of humidity and temperature. And there is a significant effect. It's all chemical kinetics, so in that, that sense, you should be comprehensible, at least in those cases. And that's another reason that I think it is a chemical reaction, because again, the results are preliminary, but it appears that the effects of humidity and temperature just affect the kinetics of a chemical reaction as opposed to an enzymatic reaction or a mixture of chemical and enzymatic. You know, I wouldn't stake my career on that conclusion, but that's just what my gut's telling me. So this girl created isolation chambers, something that could be sealed up. And one day I was surfing the web trying to figure out how to establish different humidities, and I came across a microbiology paper from like the 1960s in which a guy was studying the growth of bacteria under different conditions of humidity. And he discovered that if you take and create a saturated salt solution, that depending upon the salt you use, it would establish a humidity that was predictable and stable in a chamber. So for example, a, a saturated solution of sodium chloride, table salt, creates a humidity of about 75%, which equals sort of New Orleans on a year <laughs> average, right? right? Whereas a saturated solution of magnesium chloride creates a humidity of about 35 to 40%. Okay. Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then if you have a saturated solution of lithium chloride, it maintains an, a humidity of about 10%, Phoenix. And so she created a bunch of these jars with saturated solutions and then put them at 37 degrees room temperature or 4 degrees. And the kinetics are, are just beautiful that if you want it to degrade really fast, you put it in the sodium chloride at 37 degrees and a stain that will register on a standard curve after a year 
all right, at that high temperature and high humidity is gone within two weeks. Also, even, even more interesting is that if you have a stain at high humidity and temperature, and so degradation is taking place at this elevated rate, if you then take that stain and put it in Phoenix in four degrees and low humidity, it stops instantly. You can go out 30, 40 days and you'll have the same level that you had when you initially shifted it to that temperature. Sure. That's important because if you're a lab who wants to know what kind of tissue have I got, those other applications of RNA, it's telling you that when you collect that evidence, you should store it in the refrigerator, you know, over a calcium chloride or dryerite or something like that to preserve not only the DNA, but to preserve the RNA. Sure. That you got at the scene. That's really interesting uh, because that, that really has not necessarily been reflected with respect to how evidence is, is stored and retained. That's right. Let's kind of look forward here a little bit. So you're at a certain point where you've found that this is a, a potentially useful technique. You're starting to understand the mechanisms much better. You're understanding some of the environmental condition stuff much better. Where is this research heading and where do you think we're going to be here in a few years in terms of being able to apply this in practice? Because I'm assuming right now we're not at a point where we would recommend this being used in practice. No, there's still a lot of variabilities in, in terms of where the rubber meets the road for, for this kind of an assay. We talked about temperature and humidity and the other big deal that varies from scene to scene is substrate. So you got a blood stain on carpet, you got a blood stain on tile, you got a blood stain. Uh, hadn't thought about that, but on yes, the driveway. Yeah. Uh, what are the effects of those things? So another student now is uh, conducting those sorts of studies. I want to evaluate UV light because something's out in the sun. I haven't figured out a way to do that yet. I don't want to expose the stain to rain, so you know I just can't put it up on the roof. I need some sort of controlled exposure in the laboratory. That's on the horizon. Now that we've got all the data with the isolation chambers that we've made, I think we should buy an isolation chamber that will allow us to program variability in humidity in the way that it exists in all those cities. You know, in New Orleans, more humid in the morning, and it dries out, and then it gets humid again. We need to try and pattern that based on annual averages and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's really getting down in the weeds, but I think that's information that's important. We're to the point where I need a mathematician. One thing we have demonstrated that if we take an unknown stain in terms of its age, I mean, I know what its age is, but the person I give it to doesn't. Right. But it's been stored under these ideal conditions, and I say, tell me how old this stain is. And that assay is performed, the estimates that come back are spot on with what the actual ages are. So in principle, under ideal conditions, this assay works like a champ. And you, were, you actually gave some figures during your talk, right. something like plus or minus a couple of weeks over uh -huh. a period of three, six months, something like that? It's about two to four weeks of a window of variability in your estimate, or a window of inaccuracy if you want, up to six months. And it's about four to six weeks from six months out to probably three years. You know, it's pretty good. It's not a bad estimate. And I might also say, I was talking a little while ago about the high humidity and, and high temperature storage. It disappears in two weeks versus uh, a year's time. If we take the slopes of that high humidity, high temperature, and compare it to the slope of the ideal, it's a change of about 30-fold. And if we then incorporate that into a, uh, a guesstimate of what the age of that stain is, 
even that is encouraging. Of course. You know, when, you, when you look forward and, and try and consider how would we make a, an algorithm for a computer that would incorporate all these variables and when was the stain collected, when they think the stain was deposited at the scene, what was the temperature and humidity at that time. You know, you can kind of get a little bit of a history of the environmental conditions. And of course, if it's a stain in an apartment that, you know, has central air and heat or whatnot, you can assume pretty, pretty constant temperatures and such. So I can't let you go with at least one left field question. All right. We actually just had a working group here at AFS on Monday on PMI, post-mortem interval. And of course, it, my mind reels with respect to the application of RNA in that case. In some cases, you will have parts of the body that uh-huh. are going to be more like what your dried stain would be. But of course, you have a lot of the body that is not and will be, I assume, much more dominated by enzymatic activity. Probably so. So has this been looked at for PMI? Uh, Do you think it would be a promising approach for PMI? RNA degradation has been investigated in PMI in a model system in a laboratory using mice, I think. I don't remember. It was a really nice study, but highly controlled and all that sort of stuff. I think it's possible, but, and again, this is just my gut because I haven't really looked into it. Of course, yeah, we understand. (laughs) I, I suspect that RNA, because the body is wet, and is in a turbocharged decomp mode at the end of life. I suspect that the ways we have presently to estimate PMI with body temperature, core temperature, those sorts of things, I don't think RNA really would add much to the accuracy of those estimates. Near death, kind of like within hours, days kind of thing. Where I suspect it may have application is in perhaps estimating the age of skeletal remains, which I think would be a fabulous mm-hmm. advance there. Sure. Because the accuracy of your estimates begins to, to fail miserably when you're talking skeletonized remains in a clandestine grave or something like that. Sure. And yet the osteocytes that are available in bone are so isolated from good blood supply and, and good fluid supply, if you will, that accelerates that degradative process. Just like DNA is really, really, really well preserved in bone or teeth, perhaps RNA as well. We haven't really looked at that. And if you recall, early on in our talk, I said we've got 15,000 transcripts in our library from teeth, from blood, from semen, et cetera. So we've really just begun to scratch the surface in terms of looking for an RNA that's in a really good abundance inside teeth and also is very, very stable perhaps out 10 years, 15 years. That's sort of on the horizon. I don't really know that I'll do that. I mean, if if I worked like at the body farm in Tennessee where I had lots and lots of bone to work with, uh, that would be a very attractive avenue to pursue next. Sure, absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation here, Rob, uh, and we're going to be definitely keeping an eye on what's going on at Oklahoma State with respect to uh, looking at RNA and and degradation and crime scene stain uh, age estimation. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. Enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening to Just Science Today. Please make sure you give us lots of likes and thumbs up on the uh, podcast platform of your choice. And also, of course, check out our website, www.forensiccoe.org. Take advantage of all the resources available to you to improve your knowledge of all the uh, forensic science research and development that's going on out there in the world. 
Thank you very much for listening today. Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Suzanne Bell about a method for the single-shot detection of organic and inorganic residues from one sample using liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.